we're going to just spend a week camping on the doctrine of the Trinity. And for some of you, you're like, oh, we're not moving forward in Matthew again. Are you kidding me? Are we ever going to continue? We will. Uh, I promise. Two weeks ago, Ricky preached on the baptism of Jesus and anchoring uh, foundational passage where, as Grant mentioned, uh, the voice of the Father, the Spirit descends as a dove as Jesus comes up out of the water. Uh, such a foundational passage to our belief of this God who is three in one. So as we get into this uh, kind of unusual week for us, I want to start with just three statements before we walk through uh, texts from all over Scripture that uh, show us uh, the significance of Father, Son, and Spirit and what it means to our lives. And so three statements to get us started. Uh, the first simply being that God is three. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Three uh, persons is a word we use to describe the threeness of God, each with distinct functions. The second one, the first is God is three. The second is that each person is fully God. And, and so we could just do a huge laundry list of scripture, of text in the Bible, uh, where each Father, Son, and Spirit are ascribed, w- described with divine attributes. In the book of Acts, uh, when the, this couple lies to the Holy Spirit and they're struck down, the text says, they ask, why have you lied to God? Where lying to the Holy Spirit is the same as lying to God that The Holy Spirit is fully God. And of course, uh, Jesus, Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is a great place to go where we see Jesus in the form of God. uh, Did not not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he set that aside. And verse 11 says, so that in the end, that they might praise Jesus Christ as Lord. Jesus, uh, the Son of God, fully God. So the first statement is God is three. The second is Father, Son, and Spirit are all fully God. And then the third statement is that God is one. Deuteronomy 6.4 is a key passage for God is one. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And and so one of the ways that we describe that oneness is to say that the way that he is three is different than the way that he's one. So it's not a contradiction in the sense to say that he's one and not one. Rather, altogether to say that he is both one and three. And that's where some of this mystery comes involved. And for some of you, when the word mystery comes up, you go, yes, I, I knew it. Christians believe all sorts of weird things for no, for no reason. And this totally substantiates all of my fears and concerns. Uh, and so I want to pause and, and walk through scripture a little bit and show you where it comes from. Uh, but I also want to say that there's a variety of responses we have to the distinctly Christian doctrine of the Trinity, tri-unity, three in one. Uh, Some of the responses that we have, uh, for some of you, uh, it's kind of impractical. It doesn't make a lot of sense, and you're not really sure how it applies to your life. Some of you look at the doctrine of the Trinity the way I look at one of those books of useless facts. Some of you have seen those. Some of you love them. Some of you have them on your coffee tables. My wife loves them. I have a son that loves them. I think that the title fits, that they are useless, right? It doesn't seem practical. Um, Some of us look at the doctrine of the Trinity uh, in that way. For some, it's kind of a a speculative doctrine. It's not 
fully uh, explained every single minutia, every single detail in Scripture. So it feels speculative or it feels non-essential. And some of us would just say, I got my hands full with what is clear in Scripture to try to then get my arms around something that is less clear. It feels like something that maybe Bible students would argue about in, in seminary school, but not not practical, not concrete, not essential. We got our hands full, our hands full with the essentials. Very little time left for what is non-essential. And so I want to say that it matters. It's not something just to talk about as an academic exercise or an intellectual or cerebral exercise. It's something that matters for our life because misunderstanding often leads to misapplication when it comes to living out our faith. Uh, Last weekend, I had a misunderstanding about where a two-inch water pipe was. That misunderstanding led to the misapplication of breaking that water pipe and having to spend a lot of time fixing that water pipe. Misunderstanding often leads to misapplication. Uh, Some examples in our journey with the Lord. Uh, Culture at large Uh, Many see God as this giant cross between a huge um, Santa Claus and maybe the quintessential grandparent. And the, the, uh, the colliding of the two is this, if there is a God... Uh, someone who gives us everything that we want and always likes us, loves everything that we do, always supports us, never says anything that we're doing is wrong, affirms every interest we have, everything we want to do. They're all about us all the time. No matter what we do, they're excited uh, about us. And so the misapplication turns into a life uh, without restraint. Uh, and we know where that goes Another uh, misunderstanding about God might be that he's a tyrant. Some of us live as if God is a tyrant, constantly fearing some sort of harsh um, punishment, uh, constantly on edge, feeling like we're just a second away from being struck uh, by lightning. Some of us uh, have the misunderstanding that God is a divine uh, scorekeeper, and so we spend an enormous amount of time and effort and energy trying to accrue spiritual gold stars next to our name so that we can avoid consequences or earn some sort of favor. And it just robs us of life, robs us of joy, robs us of his power as the focus of our faith becomes our willpower to do what he's asked rather than life on his terms, in his power, uh, in his strength. So misunderstanding leads to misapplication and misapplication almost always goes to distance. Uh, Some of you have been there with relationships where uh, distance started as a very small thing in your life. And over time, it just grew and grew and grew until there was virtually no relationship left. And, And some of us, some of us are there with the Lord even this morning, years, months, Uh, decades of misunderstanding, misapplication have led to a profound distance where you're wondering if, and wondering if there's, if there's any God at all, wondering if there's ever going to be any of his power in your life, wondering if there's any uh, possibility for you that there might be significant life change, that you might grow to, to love him, to delight in him, to desire him, to see your desires for things of this world lessen and your love for him uh, increase. Uh, and so 
misunderstanding is a really significant thing. We want to dive in today. Father, Son, and Spirit. What are the unique functions of Father, Son, and Spirit? How can we think about them in a way that draws us into the Lord and grows our love for Him, our appreciation for Him, our delight in Him, and us seeing His power in our lives? So if you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to start in Galatians 4. Uh, just a couple verses uh, there, Galatians 4, 4 through 7. Uh, we could go all over uh, the place. As a, just as a broad strokes rule, the Old Testament uh, really foreshadows this idea uh, of the Trinity. Uh, the New Testament, the re- revelation is much clearer. Um, B.D. Warfield, a 19th century uh, theologian and, and principal of Princeton Theological Seminary, says the Old Testament is like a dimly lit, or is like a richly decorated room that is dimly lit. In other words, referencing the Trinity, it's all there. Uh, It's just a little bit hard to see. So uh, let's take a look at Galatians 4 and this clearer revelation that we get in the New Testament. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God, then an heir through God, okay? And so a couple reasons I wanted to start with Galatians 4 this morning is uh, Galatians 4.4 4 touches on this idea of fullness of time. Sometimes we think the Father sending the Son is this divine reaction to humans just making a mess of things. We Sometimes we think of God sending the Father sending the Son is sort of this reaction. Humans make a mess of everything. God says, fine, I'll do it myself, and sends Jesus to go do it. And so uh, what we just see right off the top there in verse 4 is the Father sending the Son is by divine plan before the foundations of the world were set in place. Um, It is not an an accident. It is not a reaction. Uh, It is the culmination of, of so much thought and goodwill and planning. And so we'll come back to that in a few minutes. Um, But the second reason for Galatians 4 is it touches on the different functions of Father, Son, and Spirit. And one of the reasons that it's hard for us sometimes to engage with Father, Son, and Spirit is there's all these gray lines about uh, what each person uh, of the Trinity does. And do we pray to the Father? Do we pray to the Son? Can I pray to the Spirit? Is that a thing? That kind of sounds strange. It's not how I, I was taught or not how I normally pray. And so I want to just kind of pause with each of those, with Father, Son, and Spirit, talk a little bit about their distinct functions, and then at the end kind of come back with a couple just broad strokes uh, observations about why the distinctly Christian doctrine of the Trinity is so special and something that causes us to know God uh, in a much more personal and intimate way that leads to worship and a loving, uh, obedient uh, response. So as we think about the Father, how do we understand the unique 
person of the Father? How do we relate to Him? How do we think about the Father at work on our uh, behalf? We're going to read 1 John 4, 9, and 10. Um, but I want you to think of the Father as uh, the divine, uh, the architect, the sender, uh, the initiator. Some of us have the mindset that there's this good cop, bad cop thing happening where Jesus is the good cop who comes, takes away the sins of the world. Uh, the Father is the bad cop who has all of this wrath built up that the Son needed to do something about. And so I would just say Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time had come, it was the Father's plan to send the Son all along. There's not a good cop, bad cop thing uh, the Father has eternally wanted good for us and made provisions to bring about that good, most clearly seen in the sending of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. First John 4, 9 and 10. It says, in this, 1 John 4, 9 and 9 and 10, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. In this... The love of God was shown to us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so uh, as we think about how how we view the father, how we relate to him, I just want to pause with this overarching theme of his love for us that caused him to want to, to be willing to, to send the Son on our behalf to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so as you think about that, um, I might ask you, how do you view the Father's thoughts about you? Do you do you believe, do you know that he loves you? Because for many of us, we would say it, we would read it, but we don't live as if we believe that he really loves us, that he treasures us, that his emotions are stirred for us, his affections are towards us. Sometimes we live like he's fed up with us and we're perpetually letting him down and we're just trying to stay out of his uh, focus out of his peripheral because we constantly let him down we know we're a disappointment and we don't want to be reminded of it so we, we pull back and we stay distant some of us feel like the spiritual black sheep in in his family where yeah he he welcomed us all in but he kind of has us at the kids table spiritually uh not at the adults table and, and so we feel uh, left out in that way uh, some of us feel like he's fed up with us some of us feel like he's disappointed with us And the unfortunate outcome is that it leads often to a life of compulsory service that is loveless and that is joyless. And so when we think his heart is distant towards us, we find that our hearts become distant towards him. And so we want to reorient ourselves around what scripture says so that we might better understand how the Father looks at us. And it says in 1 John 4 that it's primarily, most clearly seen through the Father sending um, the son. Uh, Puritan John Owens breaks up the father's love into three categories. Um, 
Some of you like distinctions, some of you don't, but I trust that if you're vacationing in Texas and someone says, oh, you're from Oregon, what do you think about all those riots? You will say, pause, I'm from Oregon, I'm not from Portland. Um, Sometimes distinctions are important. Sometimes distinctions help us better understand a person or a way that they think or relate to the world. Uh, John Owens creates these three uh, distinctions for God's love. He describes one aspect of God's, the Father's love for us as his benevolent love, and he describes that as the love that God had for us before the foundation of the world that led to him willing all of these good things uh, for us, his benevolent love from eternity past. The second category that Owens Uh, uses is beneficent love, and he uses that to describe the things that the Father does for us in real time. Uh, We understand that the Father is going to pour out the Spirit on our hearts, and so this pursuing effort that we see from the Father, uh, making resources, making his good available, accessible to us, Uh, this ongoing work of the Father to initiate that effort within the Godhead on our behalf, that he's the initiator uh, of that great work uh, for each of us. Owens calls that ongoing, real-time love, his beneficent love. Uh, And then last, he describes his complacent love, uh, and he uses that term to describe the love that the Father has for us now Uh, because of the rays of his goodness uh, that he sees in us as he has made us new creations and he sees the divine image in us, that love that God has for us because of the divine image in us. And so uh, that might be a little much for some, but what I would say is, is think about, meditate on, give thought to You have a father who has loved you from eternity past. You have a father that didn't just love you way back then, that is actively initiating for your well-being right now, who also delights in you and delights in the good that has been brought about. Uh, Some of us this morning, the only thing we need to hear this morning is simply that God treasures us deep in his heart. Not fed up with us, not sick of us, doesn't look at us as the spiritual black sheep, um, but calls us into life with his son. Ephesians 1.3 is, is a really special verse to write down. It says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The emphasis is on the abundance of every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And so um, as we move from Father, the initiator, the architect, the sender, uh, to Jesus, the eternally existing Son of God, the one who was sent, the one who was sent to take away the sins of the world, we want to consider just a little bit about what it means to be found in Christ. Because often in the New Testament, that description is used for a person who has been saved, a person who is in Christ. Ephesians 2, if you have your Bibles, we'll read Ephesians 2, uh, 1 through 5. Just want you to see a little bit about uh, what it means to be in Christ and how that reflects positively on Jesus, on the Son of God, and what that means for us. 
Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires, the body, the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul's saying that's who we were, that's who you were, that's what your life was like. Verse 5, or verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, made us spiritually alive together with Christ, Christ, so that in Jesus' death and resurrection, what was made possible was a uniting of our souls to his, and it's going to be described later as sons, as daughters. The word adoption is going to be used. This highest level of of his kindness, of his love, of his grace in this status change where we are called adopted sons and daughters, called heirs of his. Uh, This is what it means to be in Christ. So um, uh, let's just sit with that for a second. What are some of the implications? One of the implications of being found in Christ, one of the implications of what Jesus has done for us is that sin no longer has mastery. Sin no longer has control over us. Uh, Some of you are familiar with Romans 6.11. It says, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So for the Christian, for the Christ follower, sin no longer, death, the enemy no longer has mastery over us. Some of us are living right now as if sin has absolute control, absolute mastery, claws sunk in, we're not going anywhere, it's got us. And the good news of what Jesus did is to declare that sin no longer has mastery over us. Now, we can be tormented greatly by it, and we have a part to play in resisting it, but we have power to get over it because of Jesus. Uh, not only does sin not have mastery over us, um, we read in Romans 8.1 that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so uh, for those of you who, who look in the mirror and, and what you see is, is not uh, hair or no hair and, and a face and clothes that are clean or not cleaned, iron or not iron, uh, you see past failures, mistakes, uh, shortcomings. Romans 8.1 is a, is a profound uh, revelation of what life in Jesus, what Jesus did that both reflects positively on his work for us and on the Father who sent him is that there is now no condemnation for us. We go as new creations, not defined by where we've been, not defined by what we did, not defined by who we were, but defined by what Jesus did for us. And so we just discover in that that he is all that we need and he is everything that we need. We were weak. He is strong. We were sinners. He was righteous. We were broken. He was whole. We were distant. He drew near, and that in Jesus, uh, he is both everything and he is all that we need. Romans 12 is a, is a neat verse that tells us that not only are we united, Romans 12, 5 and 6, not only are we united with his 
nature, we are united with each other. And so one of the things about being in Christ, being Christ followers, is that we're saved into a community of believers. And so some of you get this clearly, and some of you it is still a great mystery. Those of you that get this clearly have done life with other believers and allowed those people into your life. You've been a meaningful part of theirs. When things have blown up in your world, you've shared that, been prayed for, been encouraged, been supported, have your hand held, been walked through difficulty. Others of you have been hands up, uh, unwilling to let anyone in, never really known that level of connection. Uh, and, and so this this doesn't make a lot of sense. And, and so what's neat here is that we are not just saved into this, all right, go on your own Lone Ranger Christian. We're saved into a community of Christ followers, people who, who have our backs, people who God has gifted to bless and enrich our lives. We ourselves being people he has blessed and gifted to enrich others' lives. And it's in that mutual submission in the body that we reflect his love and discover it in a more deeper way. It's kind of like uh, in marriage and where a marginal commitment to marriage always leads to a very marginal uh, output. And and we've celebrated some of you whose marriages have gone 40, 50, 60 years. And when we do that, one of the things we're saying is praise the Lord that he has kept you that long. Praise the Lord that your commitment has been to his calling for your marriage, not just to doing what is easiest, because when we do what he's called us to rather than what's easiest, the riches are robust, but it's a long journey. And those of you that have those 40, 50, 60 year marriages have plenty of stories to share, uh, but also some remarkable tenderness, some remarkable affection, some remarkable love giving and receiving that we look at and we go wow how do you get there and as someone who's been only married 10 years or so i would say how do you get there and what you say is not here's three steps you say it takes 40 years it takes 50 years uh that is a lifetime uh of loving and so we're, we're called into this body into this fellowship where we all have a part to play because of our oneness uh in him One of the implications of what Jesus has done is that we do not have to live defeated lives even in our time of need. Do you know that Jesus, Hebrew says, lives forever to make intercession for us? In other words, he's our advocate now before the Father, advocating for our good. If you have your Bibles, turn turn to Hebrews. Uh, read all of Hebrews when you get a chance. Read Hebrews 4 when you get a chance. Um, it's, it's, it's all good. Let me read uh, Hebrews 4.16 and talk about some of the implications of Jesus now being at the right hand of the Father, advocating for me, advocating, advocating for you. Hebrews 4.16. Is there hope for God's people in difficult time? Uh, the answer is yes. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. And this is on the heels of the author of Hebrews describing Jesus as our great high priest, as a greater prophet than Moses, um, the Messiah, the Savior, now our high priest before God, advocating for us day in and day 
out. Uh, so the question is, is there hope for God's people in difficult times? We have Jesus at the side of the Father advocating for us. Of course there's hope. What about when our difficult times are brought, about, brought on by our own uh, sin, our own failures, our own stumbling? stumbling? Uh, turn to 2 Corinthians 3.18. Hold that spot, and I'm going to read 1 John 2, 1, because I told you the wrong verse, and it's easier than flipping. 1 John 2, 1, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus Christ the righteous, our advocate for the Father, such that when we absolutely fall right down on our spiritual faces, God has given us something good, we've made a train wreck of it. God has even cleared a path for us, and rather than walking right down the path, we've veered off into the blackberry bushes and down into a deep ravine. Even when it's of our own doing, 1 John 2.1, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if you do, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous. You see that there's freedom in Jesus. You see that his death and resurrection led to freedom, led to the abundant riches, every heavenly blessing for us. And so you have the Father, you have the architect sending the Son. You have the Son being sent, being sent to do his Father's will. He says, I only do, I only say what I see the Father doing, what I Hear the Father say, nearing the cross, Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. We see this beautiful picture of Jesus who is of essence the same as the Father, equal in value, but practically submitting himself to do the Father's will. It is a beautiful picture uh, for marriage. It is a beautiful picture for our interpersonal relationships, our relationship in the church where Jesus submits himself to the Father, same in essence, same in value, same in worth, and yet submits himself to unto even the cross. And so it does beg us to look at our own lives. And for most of us who struggle with submission across the board, say, if Jesus can do that, who are we to not submit to what he has put over us? Father, Son, and, and now uh, Spirit. Acts 2, 4, what happens when the Father, what happens when the Son is at the right hand of the Father and now everything has been set in place, the pump has been primed, they're ready for the good news to go throughout all the world. Does the Father come down to make it happen? No. Does, does Jesus come back for like a second time just to make sure? Some of you sort of micromanager types, you're like, I'd want to go down and make sure everything was just right. Nope, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. What do they do in Acts 2, 4? They send the Spirit. They send the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, the eternally existing Spirit. We see the Spirit even in Genesis 1, 2, where it says the Spirit of God hovered over the water. I imagine uh, when they were first reading uh, the Torah, the law, those first five books, and it said the Spirit of God hovered over the water, they thought, well, that kind of doesn't totally make sense. How is the Spirit of God hovering and God's doing this? And then in the New Testament, we get this clearer picture of the Trinity. And now you go back to the Old Testament and you go, oh, that makes so much more sense. The Father, 
sends the Spirit. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, advocating for the Father to send the Spirit. Jesus, even going away from his followers, says it's better for me to go so that the Spirit will come. And the Spirit comes, brings all of the riches, all of the resources of God to men. And what happens? The gospel goes to the ends of the earth. And we have the Spirit of God with us. And so one of the things that's so neat here is some of us, well, many of you have traveled before and you've sat on a plane and you've been out on the tarmac when the plane's not moving. You're kind of looking around, looking at your watch, thinking about the places that you need to be, thinking, I haven't heard anything from the pilot. I know there's a pilot. I saw him or her when I walked on the plane. I haven't heard anything from the pilot. I'm not sure what's going on. I just know it's been 30 minutes, 40 minutes, 50 minutes. 60 minutes, and we're not going anywhere, and we're not moving, and there's no explanation. Some of us feel that way about our relationship with God. Like, hey, God, maybe a little bit more attentiveness, maybe a little bit more of letting me know what's going on. And so do you see that the Father sends the Spirit uh, elsewhere we read? He pours out His Spirit into our hearts. Do you see the attentiveness with which the Godhead is involved with each of our lives? You think about baptizing uh, a kid and, and Maddie and Ian and the lives that they have in front of them. And as a parent, there's so much you want to get out in front of your kid and like difficulties you want to move out of his way. And there's so many things that you want to prepare him for every turn, every decision, every conversation. And you just want to hover and you want to be that, that helicopter parent that comes in and rescues from everything that is difficult. And isn't it remarkable? And wouldn't it change our posture towards our kids? to just see and to meditate on and to think deeply about the Spirit of God alive in their hearts. The Spirit of God declaring the beauty of Christ. The Spirit of God teaching all the things that Jesus taught. So I have a part to play in that. But there's a Spirit at work that is doing far more than I will ever do. And, and I can have confidence. I can have peace. I can entrust my son to the Lord in light of that great truth. And so we see in the Father this profound love in the Spirit, or in Jesus, in the Son of God, this uh, practical submission to bring about all of this good ordained before the foundations of the world, the Spirit given to each follower of Christ to teach, to guide, to correct, to rebuke, to instruct, indwelling us and when we combine them all together, we get this much more robust picture of the divine, the, the trinity of the Godhead's work in our lives to save us and then to sanctify, sanctify us, to make us more like Jesus. Uh, and wrapping up, just two, two thoughts um, that were encouraging for me, and, and I probably will uh, not get them right as I give them to you because usually things I'm most excited about that I learn while I'm studying come out really poorly. Um, one is, is this... Um, Imagine, for a first century Jew, what it was like to read through and have be taught the Old Testament and hear all of these promises of God, right? Uh, there's, going to become a, there's going to be a son born of a virgin, and the kingdom, or the, the kingdom of the worlds will be on his shoulders, and he will rule with peace. His kingdom will be forever. That's probably exciting. Okay, but what about adding from Ezekiel where uh, God says, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will give you a new spirit that will guide you and instruct you to walk in my ways. Okay, to a first century Jew. Okay, it sounds cool. I'm not really sure what that means. 
there's the promise to Abraham. All the nations of the world will be blessed through your descendants, Abraham. To David, there will be a, a king to sit on the throne forever and forever and forever of the line of David. So we got promises of a king. We got promises of a prophet greater than Abraham. We've got promises about God's spirit. And then these first century people, no wonder they didn't have a clue what to do when the wise men came and said, where is the king of the Jews? Who knows what all is planned or who knows what is coming? Uh, And then we discover in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, in three in one, that God's plans for us were even greater, more incredible than we could have ever imagined because we do actually get his spirit in us. We do have a king forever sitting at the right hand of the Father whose the kingdoms of the world are on his shoulders. All the nations of the world are being blessed, and we see it happening distinctly through the unique functions of Father, Spirit, and Son. Uh, The only way I I can think to describe this is if you've ever been to a birthday party for a one-year-old who's having his or her very first piece of cake, the child usually looks at that piece of cake with a little bit of curiosity, not sure what this colorful blob is in front of him or her. And if you were a parent describing that cake to that child before the event, you might say, well, the cake is kind of spongy and soft. Well, the, the icing is kind of creamy and sweet. If there's filling, it might be lemon, it might be gel, it might be tart. Uh, the cake is soft, the frosting's kind of hard. If there's decorative accents on it, those are hard and crunchy. Uh, all those things don't, don't, don't go together until the child gets a bite of that cake. And what happens when a child gets a bite of that cake and realizes like a full bite, takes a huge chomp into that cake, what do, what do they tend to do? Face first, right? You get a little bit and you want more. It exceeds your expectations. It exceeds even the way that it might have been described. Uh, and so as we get a sense of, of the Trinity, of Father, Spirit, Son, three in one, distinct functions, distinct persons, persons fully God, one in essence, we discover that it is a greater fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecy than we could have ever imagined. It exceeds our expectations. Um, Second thought in wrapping up is we have the intuition that love is the supreme virtue. We have the intuition that love conquers all. We have the intuition and we see it in culture because Uh, Most of our entertainment, most of our music, most of our television shows, most of our movies center around some sort of romantic notion uh, of love. The unique construction of the Trinity, an eternally existing Father, Son, and Spirit living in loving oneness, loving unity from eternity past, gives us a framework that validates our intuition of the supreme nature of the virtue of love because it exists prior to us. And so what I mean by that is we don't have a singular God who created earth and created humanity and then chose to love it. We have a God who eternally existed in loving communion with Father, Son, and Spirit. And out of that came creation. And out of that came the manifestation of his love towards us. And so... With a triune God, a distinctly Christian doctrine of three in one, we see that love preceded the demonstration of that power. Love preceded uh, his work. Love 
for us preceded anything that he did for us. So it validates our intuition of the supremacy of love. And if you're a person that says love is more significant than affluence, more significant than intellect, more significant than wisdom, if you're a person that has that that view, it validates your intuitions and gives you a framework in the Trinity for understanding why love is supreme over all other virtues because the Father and the Son and the Spirit have eternally existed in loving communion and we are then called into loving communion with the triune Godhead and with each other. We have jumped all over the place uh, with Scripture this morning. Um, I've tried my best not to be a heretic today. Um, Harder than most days. Um, Would love to talk with you more about the significance of that. I hope you hear in the Father that you have a Father who loves you deeply. I hope you see in the Son that the riches uh, of the heavenly riches have been made available to you by his submissive act and that we have the Spirit of God with us to lead, guide, guard, correct. And it was all by design from eternity past by a Father who so deeply treasures us. If you're on the outside looking in this morning, not feeling any of that love, would you not leave in the way that you came in? Uh, We'll have prayer team people up here uh, write, I want to follow Jesus, or something on your card that will give us a chance to follow up with you this week. Uh, If you're someone who is like a, a kinked hose, love of God pouring in, you're that kinked hose, very little love is pouring out. Um, We would just want to invite you to reorient yourself around who Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one, who our God is. Um, Because going back to Galatians 4, the verses that precede and follow, um, God is love and in him is no darkness uh, at all. And how can we say that we love God if we don't love um, those around us? Uh, It's our calling. It's our privilege. It's our gift. It's the heavenly riches of God bestowed upon us. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Dear God, we really, we entrust your spirit to take the words that you have preserved for us and embed them in our hearts. Lord, uh, for those who are experiencing hopelessness in defeating circumstances, Lord, may this morning they be reminded in a very clear and personal way that they have a, a an advocate. They have Jesus at your side, Father, advocating for them, interceding on their behalf. Lord, when they don't have words, Jesus does on their behalf directly, Lord, to your ears. And so we thank you for that. We thank you uh, for your spirit. For those of us, Lord, who feel like there's this, there's this distance, Lord, that you're an inattentive, inattentive, distant God, may we be reminded in a powerful way, Lord, that your spirit was sent to indwell us, Lord, that your love poured out on our hearts, that you are near, that you are engaged, that you are concerned, that you are involved, that you are active. Lord, may these truths burrow deep into the core of who we are, that we might find you lovely, Lord, and find your love for us uh, to be more than we ever could ask or imagine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.